All right, so we're talking about Jesus. It's been a few weeks since I've been up here. Thank you to Matt for uh, taking Labor Day weekend and talking about the seven festivals. I'll get that here real quick. And for Keith last week, uh, not actually two weeks ago, covering the Good Samaritan while we were gone down in chasing hurricanes. And uh, last week we were at Holiday World, so it's good to be home. It's good to be home and good to be back. It's good to be right here teaching the Word. So uh, let me pick up to where we left off. The transfiguration has happened. James, John, and, and Peter were with, with Jesus. And they've come down and had a little controversy at the foot of the hill right there with the Pharisees and the Jews. And now it's time for the Feast of the Tabernacles that, that Matt talked about. The Feast of uh, the festival, the feast, the shelters, uh, booths, different names. But here's, here's a couple of things that happen that are critical. These are critical for you to understand as we get through this section of the Scripture. Is typically what the priest would do during the festival of the booths, one of the, thing, one of the many things that they would do, they were very legalistic and very traditional in what they did. But that priest would go from the Temple Mount in, in Jerusalem and he would go down to the Pool of Siloam. And he would take this golden pitcher and he would dip it into the Pool of Siloam and he would walk it back through the Kidron Valley. We're going to walk back through the Kidron Valley in May. little promo. Back to the temple. Go up to the altar. Take this pitcher of water from... Uh, this, the spring of Siloam, and he would pour it over the altar just to resemble the pouring out of the Spirit. That was one of the things they did at the Festival of Booths. Then the other thing that they would do is they would actually go into the holy place. In the holy place, there was this table with the bread on it, and there was this lampstand. Remember, as, as, as Matt was like teaching these festivals, he had this golden lampstand up there that represented the different festivals. Well, this lampstand actually was in the holy place. There was the veil, and then beyond the veil was the holy of holies, which only the high priest could enter. And he only did that one time a year. Side note... Side note, Jesus is our high priest. Jesus lives within us. The high priest lives within us, the temple, today. That's a little different than it was before the cross where we're talking about with Jesus right here. Jesus has already dealt with all the sin issue. There's no more altar to pour the water over. Alright? But here's, here's the interesting thing. During that festival of booths, the priest would actually go into the holy place and he would light that lampstand. And uh, we had a conversation in, in one of our small groups Thursday night about prayer. And uh, then I continued that conversation at Cracker Barrel with my wife on Friday morning. We're talking about the Lord's the Lord's Prayer, isn't that the model prayer? And we were, I was talking about how Jesus really gave us the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and I, I've already said this as we've covered the Sermon on the Mount. But he gave us the Lord's Prayer as really as a walk through the temple. 
It's a walk through the temple. And so when he says, lead us not into temptation. That part of the temple that he's talking about is where they actually light this gold lampstand. And it's our path. It lights our path for the direction that we would go. Promise you, just go back. If you want something to study, study the Lord's Prayer. And it's literally Jesus walking into the temple all the way to the Holy of Holies. Go back and look at that real quick. Oh, not today. Later. So uh, this festival of booths was the last of the seven festivals, and it was a big deal. But you need to know those two things as we dig into this passage of Scripture. In John 7, 10, quickly it says, After his brothers had gone to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. Remember this. They kept saying, Jesus, come to Jerusalem, come to Jerusalem. He's like, no, 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 you guys go ahead. What you have to teach, what you have to offer, everything is good enough. You don't need me there. I'll come later. So this is what's happened is Jesus has now come to the temple during the festival of the booth, and he's done it privately, quietly, just as if the Hayward snuck in here on the front row. I love it. Luke nine fifty one says this. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now, here's what you have to understand is Jesus was in Galilee when the disciples went down to Jerusalem. Watch my hands. Jesus was in Galilee, the north part of Israel, and he went down to Jerusalem. But in the middle right here is where the Samaritans lived that Keith talked about two weeks ago. What you may not understand about the Samaritans is that they were considered half-breeds. Before, years before, when Nebuchadnezzar had like taken into captivity the Jews and then they began to like breed with the Jews the Jews came back in and these half-breed Jews were the Samaritans and they lived right there between Galilee and Jerusalem. It's almost like they had to pass through every time they went to a festival. And the Samaritans would like boo them. It'd be like, uh, you, you try to think of, try to give you an analogy. It's like if, if the Colts fans lived in Galilee, and every year they were going to go to the Super Bowl. <laughs> they had to pass through New England. There was a little bitter rivalry as you pass through. And they hated each other. And so now like Jesus is passing through Samaria and the Samaritans see that he is walking towards Jerusalem. They're mad that he's walking towards Jerusalem. It says, but they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they must have been traveling with him, right? A couple of them stayed with him. James and John saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? <laughs> That's awesome. Do you want us to destroy the patriots? 
all of a sudden, James and John had this confidence that came out of nowhere. Literally, it had to come from them standing on the Mount of Transfiguration and seeing an amazing feat. That he saw Jesus like transformed and you see they were one of the elite three, two of the elite three. And they're literally saying, Jesus, hey, we can call down fire and take care of all these Samaritans right now. And Jesus says this, but he turned and rebuked them. Now, I get what you're seeing when you see the word rebuked, and we talked about this just a few weeks ago. What does rebuking look like from a Jesus perspective? If I have friends that need to be corrected, I can do that out of love. I don't have to chew them out. I don't think that Jesus sat here and chewed James and John out just because they wanted to defend him. I think he's like, hey guys, I got this. Relax. We're here to love people, including the Samaritans. That's a form of rebuking. So when you read that, don't get all hostile on me, all right? That may have been what you grew up with, but that's not necessarily how we have to read it. And then it says, and they went to another village. Quickly, in Matthew 8, we're jumping back because remember, we're doing this in chronological order right now, but I can jump back to Matthew 8 because Matthew's not written in chronological order. But we can see that in Matthew chapter 8, verse 19, it says, A scribe approached him. A scribe. A Pharisee approached him. And we'll jump to Luke 9, which is the same story. We find out that it's the same story, but Luke 9, 57, that's where we'll read it from. It says, As they were traveling on the road, someone, that would be the scribe that was announced in Matthew chapter 8, said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told them, Foxes have dens, and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What what does that even mean? Like, he's saying, I really don't have a residence. I just travel around spreading the good news and wherever I have a chance and opportunity to lay my head the good people take care of me and that's where I'll stay if not remember what he does he sent them out ahead at one point and he says look if they don't want anything that you have to offer just dust your feet off and move on and this is literally the way that Jesus lived his life traveling from city to city just trusting that His father was going to provide for him and take care of him. In verse 59, it says this. Then he said to another, follow me. And this man said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But then Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news to the kingdom of God. Now, that sounds pretty harsh, right? It's like the guy just said, my father died and I want to go bury him. And Jesus is like, no, 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 he'll, he'll get buried. Don't worry about him. Just hang out with me. Let, if we're studying this from a Jewish perspective, let me offer this to you. That 
when a Jewish father died, it was the responsibility of the firstborn son to stick around for at least one more year after the father died. To take care of the, the mom, the widow, the family, and to make sure that everything was good to go for at least a year. That was a Jewish tradition. Now read this again, the same sentence, and read it with a different perspective that maybe the dude's dad's not even dead yet. And he, Jesus is saying, come follow me. And he's like, no, I've got responsibility back home. i got to like take care of the house and everything when my dad dies. But Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. In verse 61, it says, another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. Uh, look back, it's fit for the kingdom of God. Now, again, this sounds kind of harsh that he's like saying, no, you can't go home and say goodbye to your parents. But understand this. If a follower of somebody, let's say that uh, you decide that Jesus is the Messiah, what do the Jews believe that uh, about Jesus being the Messiah? They don't believe that he's the Messiah. That the Messiah is still to come. So literally, if you go back home and say, uh, I'm going to go follow Jesus, therefore I'm giving up my Jewish faith, here's what happens. Is they have a funeral for you. Like, okay, you're no longer a part of our family. Luke just sent me this story, this video last week about a Muslim man who gave up his faith to pursue Jesus and his family disowned him. It wasn't any different right here. The, the Jewish boy was like saying, let me at least go back and hug my mom and dad and tell him that I'm going to go pursue you. And he's like, no, if you go back, you may not follow me. It's going to be a bad deal if you go back. Just come follow me right now. Jesus was really calling for a complete surrender. He's talking about, I understand that you are going to make a sacrifice. But if you want to be obedient, you'll just hang out with me right now. And then we wonder why the workers are few in the harvest. Because the sacrifice then was not easy. And for some in this room, it's not easy. Then we jump to John chapter 7, verse 11. It says, The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, Where is he? Obviously, there's a lot of talk going on. Here's what's happened is, the disciples have come ahead of Jesus to the festival, and everybody's like, that's probably, that's probably the highlight of the festival is there's this guy named Jesus who claims to be the Messiah. And 
what has occurred at this point is this, is the Pharisees all along have said, look, if the Messiah can do these three miracles, if the Messiah can do these three miracles, if they can heal a blind person from birth, which has never been done, somebody that's born blind, if somebody can heal a person, cause them to see if they've never seen before, or if they heal a person, a Jew, of leprosy, if they heal a person of leprosy, which had never been done, a Jew had never, a Gentile had been healed, but not a Jew. And then, this is a good one, if they can cause a mute, a person who can't hear or speak and who is demon-possessed, if they can cast the demon out of that person, which we've never been able to do, then definitely they're the Messiah. We, those are like the messianic miracles that these Jewish tradition and these Pharisees all said, look, if they can do these three, if they can do these three, then there's no doubt. Now, you're not going to like read that in the Scripture. You're not going to read... Here's the three messianic miracles in the scripture. But I promise you, if you go over to Israel and you talk to any Jew about the messianic miracles, they're not going to want to talk about it. They're aware of it, but they're not going to want to talk about it because they don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. So here's the interesting thing. Now this festival is occurring. All the Jews are there and Jesus has done like to to all three of these miracles at this point yet they have said he's not the messiah but the waters are being stirred and they said where is he i have to think in my mind that these jews are questioning themselves and going wait could he really be the messiah could could the man who we've seen do some impressive things, could he be the Messiah? It says, <clears throat> verse 12, and there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving people. You get on Twitter lately? I mean, it's pretty crazy, but it's comparable. Half the people are like for him, and half the people are like totally against him. And this is what's happening at this festival as they're looking and waiting for Jesus to come. Half the people are ready to kill him half the people are ready to worship him. He's already been condemned by the Jewish people, by the Jewish leadership, because he's accused of... You go back to Matthew chapter 12 when he he did one of these messianic miracles and they literally accused him of doing these miracles under the power of Beelzebub. That's the evil one. Like, Jesus, you're possessed, you're demonic... And it was at this point that Jesus said, you've just blasphemed the Spirit, and he cut him off. In verse 13, it says, still nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. 
talking about the leadership, like they couldn't even comfortably talk about Jesus because the Jewish leadership said he's not the Messiah. There's no way that you can publicly question if he's still the Messiah because the leadership has already said, no, he's not the Messiah. So therefore, they just shut up and said nothing. They were quiet. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. Jesus now shows up. They ask, where is he? And he begins to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, the Jews, these are the people that said he's not the Messiah. They're still sitting there listening to him. It says, how is this man so learned? Since he hasn't been trained. Like, we have all these rabbi schools that they go through. There's different rabbis that teach. It's just like seminary, but... Jesus hasn't gone through any of these rabbinical schools. But how in the world does he speak so eloquently? How does he speak God's word with so much affirmation? They're totally questioning how did he get what he's got? How is it possible for an uneducated man to speak so beautifully? I got a question for you. How did Jesus learn? How did Jesus learn? The Spirit from the front row. Luke says the Spirit. We can go to Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4. And it says this. The Lord God has given me, and if you're reading from the New American Standard Version, me is capitalized. I get that it's Old Testament and that Jesus is not around in the Old Testament, but Isaiah speaks directly about the suffering servant, which is Jesus. And it says, The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples, that I might know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens my morning, wakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Where did Jesus get trained? He got trained from the Spirit. The Spirit, Jesus went away and he hung out with the Spirit. He hung out with the Father. He still does this as we read through the Gospels. He gets up early in the morning and he goes away and he hangs out with his Father. Who's teaching him? The Father is teaching him. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't go to any rabbi school. He didn't do any of that stuff. And they're sitting there like going, he's totally educated, yet he doesn't have... Here's what happened. Most of the people that taught in the temple, they would quote the different rabbis. Rabbi such and such says this, and rabbi such and such says this, and rabbi such and such says this when they teach. All different interpretations. Yet Jesus would come and he would just say, God said this. God said this. God's word said this. You guys, it's not much different today. Look, you go out there, watch on Facebook, on Twitter, on sermons, everything else. And you're going to hear quotes from theologians and philosophers in the church. Trust me, 
this younger generation, this college generation, quotes Piper, John Piper, more than they quote Jesus. They're, they've put these theologians up there on pedestals, and they, hey, I don't disagree with what a lot of their what of what they're posting. Some I do, but I don't disagree. But let me tell you something. God's word is the most important thing. It's the most important thing that you can quote. It's the most important thing that you can post is God's word. And this is this is the same thing that Jesus is doing. What's happening today in 2017 happening back there in around 30 A.D. Hey, he's not quoting rabbis. He's just quoting the word. Now watch this. Verse 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. They're saying blasphemy. They're, they're, they're like, blasphemy, blasphemy. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. Now, here we go. I said this morning on Facebook, you come this morning, I'm going to tell you what God's will is for your life because that's one of the biggest questions. One of the biggest questions that you have in this room right here is, what's God's will for my life? Right? What am I supposed to be doing? I'm going to tell you right now what you are supposed to be doing as God's will for your life. It's the same thing that Luke just said. Follow the Spirit. <laughs> can, I, can I make it any easier for you? Just follow the Spirit. Hello. Follow the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. That's God's will for you. I don't care if you eat a cheeseburger or a chicken sandwich for lunch. Just follow God's will. I don't care if you park in the front row or the back row. Just follow the Spirit. Spirit, If you stay within the Spirit, you're good. Now, here's, here's the next question that you'll always get. How do you know when it's the Spirit of the Lord versus... I'll use this word, verbiage in here because you're familiar with it. The power of sin. How do I know, how do I know that it's the Lord's speaking to me versus the power of sin? Now, for those of you that are like guests with us, power of sin is, I totally believe that I'm a redeemed, holy, forgiven person. And that the high priest, the son of God lives inside of me. He's made me a new creation. There's nothing more I can do to make myself better than I am right now in my soul and my spirit. Now, granted, I have this flesh, this earth suit, this, bo- this, this body right here. And honestly, it's neutral. It's neither good or bad. But there's this power of sin that, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 that says it dwells in my flesh. Like it's constantly sending these terrible thoughts to my head. Like right now, you're sa- you, they're not buying a word that you're saying. You're screwing this thing up. That's all. Like I'm sitting here trying to teach. And those are the thoughts that go through my head. They're not even like listening to me right now. They're thinking about something else. They're fantasy league. All, all these things like 
goes through my head right now about you. And I'm trying to teach. But that's just the power of sin. We all deal with it. Some of you are dealing with bigger thoughts than that right now. I get it. I get it. But that's the struggle. And so the question I go back to is, how do you know what's the Spirit leading you to do this? And how do you know what is the power of sin? I'll say this. Just like Jesus, you have to know the Father. You have to know the Father. If you want to know what the Spirit is leading you to do, if you want to know what the Spirit is saying to you, you have to know the one who's saying it. You have to know him. You can't just like say, oh yeah, I'm a believer, I have the Spirit, and he's leading me to do this, leading me to do that. Well, how do you know the Father? How do you get to know the Father? These are just simple questions that you ask all the time. You have to read his word. Look, you're going to have to read his word. This is what Jesus said. He's not quoting philosophers. He's not quoting theologians. He's not quoting rabbis. Read God's word. You want to know the Father? Read his word. If you know the Father, he's going to speak to you, and he's going to lead you. And we call that following the Spirit when you're obedient to it. Watch this. I promise you. I promise you that the Spirit is not going to lead you to do anything that is contrary to His Word. I promise you. If it's contrary to His Word, that's the power of sin. A short definition of the power of sin is your flesh and your selfish desires playing out. Sorry. That's what it is, and we all deal with it. Those, when, when I start to do things in my own strength versus trusting the Spirit to do, me, do it in me, then that's my struggle. Look, I'm with you. <laughs> Trust me. I'm with you. I struggle trusting. There's times when I want to do it my own way. When I want to do it in my own strength. And the hardest thing, even though I can believe it and I can get up here every Sunday and I can teach it, it's trusting it. It gets easier every day. I think it does. I think it gets easier every day. The more I know them, the more I trust them. And so what I'm saying is, therefore... You can match up the Spirit's leading with what God's Word says. If you want to know if it's the Spirit or if the power of sin, you're going to have to like know the Father by reading the Word. Not by me spoon-feeding it to you. You really digging into the Word and knowing the Father. You're going to hear people... Uh, drop the line all the time the spirit told me to do such and such you're gonna you're gonna hear that line all the time and honestly you can sit there and you can watch what they do or watch what they say and you can match it up with the word of god and you can know right away if they're following the spirit or if they're following themselves 
And then, and then, you know what's the hardest part about that for me? Is me listening to the Spirit, do I rebuke them at this point? Most of the time I don't, because they don't have an ear to hear. And so what do I do then? I pray for them. <laughs> you guys... It seems like this Christian thing is a difficult thing, but if you just know him and you trust him, he'll literally do this for you. You have to listen to the Spirit of God to know what he wants you to do. And then verse 18 says this, The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. That would be the flesh, selfish. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. I've heard this a few times. <laughs> let, me, let me say this. It's not about you being happy. I've heard it a few times. God wants me to be happy. You find that in the in the in the text for me right there in God's word right there, and I I'll give it to you. But there's I, I I think God wants me to be happy, but it doesn't say that in the scripture that He just wants me to be happy. Honestly, it's about me being obedient to God so that He is glorified. That's it. That's it. I want you in this room to think about some of the issues you got going on and maybe it has to do with a relationship. You got some difficult relationships that you're dealing with in here and you just ask this simple question. Just ask this simple question. I wonder how much glory God is going to get out of this decision that I'm going to make as I respond. As you respond to situations, relationships, circumstances, and you're following the Spirit, and you're being obedient, I promise you God will be glorified. I pro it, look, it may it just may be the weirdest thing that you've ever done. It may not make sense to the world. It may not make sense to those around you. But if God's leading you to do it, it's just the simple fact that obedience glorifies God. Verse 19, it says, Didn't Moses give you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Now he's like attacking the Pharisees. He's attacking the Pharisees because he's being attacked. He's saying this. Look, God gave you, the Jews, the law through Moses. And there's not a single one of you that have kept it. Not a single one of you that kept it. But I've done it perfectly. I've kept every law of Moses perfectly. Jesus 
had fun, I think he made it a hobby out of breaking the oral law, the Jewish traditions. We see that throughout the scripture, those that the Pharisees made up, you know, the, my, my, my big old book called the Mishnah, all their man-made rules. Jesus, he had a heyday breaking those things. But he kept every one of his father's laws. And they're wanting to kill him when they're the one that broke God's law. Let me tell you, there's only one person that will ever live that will live out the law of Moses, Moses perfectly, and that was Jesus. Verse 20, it says, You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who's trying to kill you? They're like, look around, like, literally, no one has publicly said, let's kill him yet. And now they're trying to act like they're innocent. It says, I performed one work, and you all were amazed. Jesus answered him. And he's referring here to John chapter 5 when he healed the paralytic man and he told him to pick up his pallet. The problem was is that he told him to pick up his pallet when it was on the Sabbath. And when he picked up his pallet, that was considered work in the eyes of these Pharisees. And you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, I know this is what you're busting me about, is this healing back in John chapter 5. And get this, he says this. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. <laughs> what? Where'd that come from? This is why God has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Think about it. They were required, they were required to, by God's law, to circumcise young Jewish boys on what day? The eighth day. Well, some boys were born eight days out from the Sabbath. But if you're required by the law to circumcise this young Jewish boy on the eighth day, sometimes you had to circumcise on the Sabbath. But that was one of their oral laws because to <laughs> cut the little boy, that would have been work. That would have been work. So you guys are even breaking your own laws. It's not against the law for Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath. It was just, again, their Jewish tradition. And then he says, as we close out this section here, it says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Like, it's okay for you to circumcise on the Sabbath, but I can't heal a man? And the last thing he says right here is he says, stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. You Pharisees have all your laws messed up. What you keep doing is you keep looking at the surface issues and the things of the fruit, doing the things, doing things, and you're totally missing this. Like, here it comes. I'm going to bring this thing home right here. You guys are focused on the symptoms, what he did, what she did, what they did, what we did, and you're missing the root. 
the root of the problem. He's saying, you need to focus on the righteous judgment. Look, I get it. I got all sorts of going-ons in here, relationship-wise. I get it. You're sitting there like going, he's talking to me. No, I'm not. Everybody in here is thinking the same thing. Trust me. You can deal with the symptoms. You can deal with the surface issues. Or you get to the root of the problem, which is a spiritual issue. Jesus didn't care about what you did. He didn't care about what you did. He cared about their heart. That's what he cared about. That's the root of the issue. I look at you. I see what you do. But I look at you and I see who you are. There's a big difference. I love you. I love, look, this is Rusty speaking to you. I love you for who you are. I put up with what you do, and you put up with what I do. Some of us are goobers. You get it? But the truth of the matter is, when you look at me and I look at you, and you're holy, righteous, redeemed, a new creation. That's what I see. It's a beautiful picture you should see. Look, the glory, the glory of God sits right here in front of me and in front of you. It's beautiful. If you get that, watch. If you get that, you walk out of here with your head hell high. Knowing that the power of sin is telling you something totally different this morning. I get it. I get it. But know the truth. That you're holy. That you're righteous. You're forgiven. You're a child of God. He's adopted you and made you one of his own. Everything that is his is yours. There's nothing more that you can do to earn anything that God wants to give you. It's a done deal, and he's the one responsible for it. Father, I pray that you, man, I pray that you would just teach us, that you would allow us to trust what uh, your word says. And, uh, Lord, if it was my strength up here this morning, uh, (laughs) take care of your people. I trust that your spirit will do that, that they've uh, heard different messages this morning, that your message would just ring true in them. Whatever that is, I I trust you. I trust you with my family, my friends, my brothers, my sisters. I trust you, Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.